Well, good morning. This is a chance. We, uh, we've been kind of redesigning some things in the marketing area for the college, and we really wanted to kind of show you some of the stuff that's coming out. You can see some of the banners up here, um, some new kind of logo crest kind of things that are going to be coming out, things that hopefully will appeal to teenagers uh, and your friends back home. So as we launch this this week, you need to watch for different things on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, all those things. Again, you can help us to be marketers for our own college because as you share it with all your friends, just think about it, I know you have more than two friends. And so even if you only had two friends, we could double this place right off the bat. So that's a key point to it. Um, so you'll be watching for us on those things. You will see some new videos coming out. You'll see some videos of your classmates coming out on some of those things, little snippets here and there. So we're just tuning you up today to kind of say, look for it. Be watching for it. Watch for YouTube and other things to become postings this next week, over the next week. And next week in chapel, we'll actually show you the video with a bunch of testimonies on it and kind of launching that whole era for us as well. Uh, Saturday is going to be a swag day. Uh, sports guys are already putting all their stuff on sale. We'll have some more sweatshirts on sale. If you can wear swag on Saturday, that would be great because it's a sports ID camp is taking place. There's going to be like 25 to 30 athletes here for that, as well as about 20 others for our preview day. And so there's going to be about 50 guests on campus this weekend. So again, kind of put out the carpet and say the red carpets will be out, reminding you just to be extra friendly. I know you're super friendly anyway. So I want to thank you for the past and all the preview days that we've had because they've been really successful this year. Uh, applications are way up from other years. All those kinds of things are happening. So I think you guys are doing a great job on helping us to do all those things. Um, do I forget anything? I'm not sure. Uh, yes, the Saturday night is a Brian Dirksen concert, and it's kind of their finale here on stage. So I want to make sure you come, bring your friends. It's going to be full house, I think, because people in town will want to come too. So I would encourage you to be here a little bit earlier. Be here at 7 o'clock, get your seat and be prepared for a great evening of worship together. So with Brian and the past grads being here, so that's going to be taking place as well. Well, this morning we have Carmen. She's going to come and share. I'm excited to hear from her. I haven't been in any of her classes, but I've heard amazing things. And so I'm, you're on high standard up here now. Do you need me to lower this for you, or are you good? No, that's good. It's good? All right, let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for the way you lead and guide in our lives. Thank you for the way you've led and guided in Carmen's life. And as you have brought her here to this place to share her knowledge with so many of our students. And we thank you for that. Thank you for enthusiasm for life and for helping this college become a better place. Bless her today as she leads us. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Well, if we're honest, chapel messages don't tend to be that memorable. Most of you would be hard-pressed to remember last week's chapel, uh, what it was about, if we're honest. But here's a notable exception. I remember the very first chapel message I heard in high school. That was almost 27 years ago. And our principal, Steve Ribbons, got up uh, in front of the whole student body, and he said this, you are all going to fail this year. And we kind of looked at each other like, what sort of a pep talk is this? We're all going to fail this year. That's not even fair. But here was his point. Everybody fails at some time or another. 
And what matters is not that we've failed, but how do we respond to that failure? What do we do with it? If we are teachable, our failures can become our launching pad. Our failures can shape us into men and women of character. So there's a lot to like about David. We've seen him this semester, we've seen him humble and patient, waiting for his time on the throne. We've seen his courage to face Goliath, his friendship with Jonathan, the depth of his character as he refuses to harm the Lord's anointed. We've witnessed the enthusiasm of his worship, his desire to honor God by building a temple, his heartfelt prayers in the Psalms, and his compassion, this was last week, for Saul's crippled grandson, Mephibosheth. But today, today we encounter the dark side of David. It turns out that he is not superhuman after all. Today is David's epic fail. I'm not sure how I keep ending up with the gnarliest stories in the Bible. <laughs> Last semester, it was imprecatory prayer with David on the run from his murderous son. Today, it's David, David's own lust, adultery, murder, confrontation, brokenness. Oh, wait. I am an Old Testament professor, aren't I? Okay, so maybe I signed up for this. Um, we've, we've already heard it said this semester, but it's worth saying again that the phrase, I'll go back to this, after God's own heart, is actually has nothing to do with David's heart. So I'll just say it again. The phrase in Hebrew that, that's being translated into English, after God's own heart, is actually a reference to God's having chosen David. So it has nothing to do with the state of David's heart. It has to do with God's heart. God's heart selected him. He's the one after God's heart. So perhaps, if we have a better handle on that, it will help us come to terms with how could this amazing king that God chose fail? It's not about his qualifications for service. It's about the fact that God chose him for a task, but being chosen doesn't remove his sin nature, and it doesn't mean he won't fail. David is very, very human. So his story stands as a warning and as an example. 2 Samuel 11 is the warning. Don't think that you're above sin. Could happen to anybody. We're all capable of such dark behavior, as Bill Arnold writes. Um, chapter 12 is the model. So we get both a warning and a model, or warning and an example. Second Samuel 12 is the example or the model. We'll get to that in a few moments, but first the warning. Mark wanted me to talk about chapter 12, which is a much nicer chapter to talk about, but we need to reckon with 11 first. So I've been sitting with this story for a few months now, reading it and rereading it, and the more time I spend with this story, the more questions I have. It's intriguing the way the narrator recounts what happens, very matter-of-factly. We get almost no emotion, almost, we, we get no sense of motivation. Why does he do this, and why does she say that, and why does he act in this way? We don't know. The characters proceed as though this is just business as usual. And perhaps that's part of the point, because David is acting as though this is business as usual, as though he has every right to do what he does. And if he were king of any other ancient Near Eastern kingdom, he would have that right. But David's not king of any other ancient Near Eastern kingdom. He's king of Israel. And that means David's power is not absolute. He is not free to do as he pleases. He doesn't make the rules. Yahweh does. 
So let's read the story together beginning in 2 Samuel 11. Pull out your Bibles, and as we read, watch for the key word sent. We get it 12 times in this chapter, the word sent, and it's really fascinating to track with it. 2 Samuel 11. I'm reading from the NIV. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Why? Why is David not out with his men fighting this battle? Why is he at home? We're not told, but I think we as readers are invited to wonder whether this is the right course of action for him. They're out destroying and besieging. He's literally sitting in Jerusalem. David sat in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed. He got up from his bed in the evening. That means he was in bed during the day. Hmm. Sounds, I thought kings had a lot to do, but maybe he doesn't. Uh, so one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. We don't generally do that here because we have peaked roofs, but here in ancient Israel, there's flat roofs, so there he is. He's walking around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Why? Why is Bathsheba bathing where David can see her? Is this intentional? Is this... Is she on her roof, which is what I've always assumed, or is she in a courtyard? The text actually doesn't say she's on the roof. Is he seeing her through a window? Why? Does she want to be seen? We don't know. We're not told. Lots of questions. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. All right, so... Bathsheba, we're told three things about her. First, potentially her name, although it could also be daughter of Sheba or daughter of seven, daughter of perfection. Um, but she's also, her name means daughter, keep that in mind. Daughter of Eliam and woman of Uriah the Hittite. Who are these men? Eliam is one of David's 30 mighty men, so it's his daughter who's married another of David's 30 mighty men, Uriah. So this is no, like, stranger, distant stranger. This is somebody very close to power in David's court. And all three of these designations remind us that she is not available, and David knows this. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. How does Bathsheba feel about this? We have no idea whether she was egging it on or whether she's a victim of his abuse of power. Bathsheba has almost no voice in this story. Her only two words in this whole chapter are written down and sent to David. I'm pregnant. She doesn't even have a name, potentially. Uh, that we, we hear Bathsheba, but then... For the rest of the chapter, she's called the woman or the wife of Uriah, as if to underscore, this is not a woman who David was supposed to be with. The, na the narrator consistently reminds us of that. It does no good to argue that this was consensual sex. 
that Bathsheba was asking for it by bathing in public. Consensual sex was not a meaningful category in the ancient world, where women were possessed by men, and those men were charged to protect their purity. The ground floor of the covenant includes two categorical prohibitions that rule out this encounter that they've had. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery. David violated the covenant the moment his eyes lingered longer over her bare flesh. He has been charged with the responsibility to protect his neighbor's wife. And instead, he summons her. For David, as for every Israelite, the neighbor's wife is like a daughter to be protected. Huh. Her name is even daughter. That should have clued something for David. She's supposed to be a daughter to be protected, not an experience to be collected. David, who knows, David knows who Bathsheba belongs to, and he even has great respect for the men she belongs to. It's not like she's anonymous. She, he knows she's unavailable, but this does not deter him in, le in the least. Normally, we wait for application till the end of a message, but there are things that could be said right here about all of us as members of God's covenant people who are charged to protect our neighbors, charged to protect the sanctity of other people's life and property and marriages and reputation. The Ten Commandments lay out uh, a vision of what it would look like to have a community where we are more concerned to protect each other than to get what we want for ourselves. It, it's not too much of a leap to think about the modern-day problem of pornography, which is a $97 billion industry. Pornography is nothing other than exploiting someone else's daughter. Just like Bathsheba is off-limits to David, these women are off-limits to all of us, these men, these children. And it's our job to protect them. Sometimes people think of pornography as the victimless crime. Don't believe it for a second. There is more exploitation, more assault, more abuse in the pornography industry than in any other industry, and very high levels of human trafficking. So, so you can't just rationalize and say, well, she's asking for it. She signed the contract to do this work, and it, it's not hurting her. She's, she's asking for it. Um, just like David can't say, well, she was bathing where I could see her. Our job is to protect our neighbors. Okay, back to the story. Verse 4, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Did you know that? She's not taking a normal bath. She's taking a ritual bath, which might explain why it's out in public. I don't know. Does David, when he sees this, knowing now she's at the end of her period and she's clean, so there's no prohibition against sleeping with her, does he see this as an opportunity? Oh, I can have this woman without being ritually unclean. How nice is that? Uh, that doesn't really work, does it? Then she went back home. Why? I don't know. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Why? 
What does he want with Uriah? As readers, we might be thinking, oh, great, he's going to apologize in person. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and <clears throat> uh, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. A gift? Why? Is he buying Uriah's silence? Does Uriah know what has happened? We tend to think of this as some kind of secret sin that David's committed. But this is a small town. Jerusalem's not that big of a place. And David's sin was actually had public witnesses, right? He sends people to go find out about her, and then he sends people to go get her, and then she goes back home. The Whisper Network, I'm sure, was active. Does Uriah know? So David says to go down to his house and wash his feet. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Why? David was told Uriah did not go home, so he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house? and eat and drink and make love to my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Here from the words of, Ur from the lips of Uriah, we get what David should have gotten from the very beginning. Uriah is, has, his character is too noble to engage in the kind of cover-up that David wants him to do. Whether he knows or not, his morals are higher than David's. In fact, he's taken a page from, from David's playbook here. Do you remember the story when David goes to the priest at Nob and he's with his men and he asks, do you have anything here to eat? And the priest says, well, there's this consecrated bread, but you can only have it if you've kept yourselves from women. And David's answer is, that's my practice on all my military campaigns. We never touch women. So now he's calling one of his mighty men from the front lines and saying, hey, <clears throat> why don't you go wash your feet? Is he trying to trap Uriah in a ritual infraction so that he can then put him to death for compromising the purity of the entire army? Or is David trying to cover his sin because he feels guilty? Or is he trying to save face? It doesn't say. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. This is plan C. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. So now we have a military commander who, is, who has more noble character when he's drunk than the king does when he's sober. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. And so, so Joab does this. While Joab has the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, 
Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. We'll skip that part. The, re the report gets brought back. Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. As they send these messages back and forth through this messenger, they both have to be careful because Joab is in on David's treachery. How do you send a message that will get the point across without the treachery becoming known? And they find a way to do it. It's really interesting to look at how this is worded in Hebrew, if we translate it more woodenly, verse 25, he, David says to Joab, do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. This matter, this death of Uriah, or this murder of Uriah. David could be actually asking Joab to overlook the unpleasant thing he had to do. In any case, the narrator tells us in verse 27, after Uriah's wife mourned, the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And now we get the first narrative indication of how the Lord feels about this. And it says in the NIV, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Again, more woodenly translated, but the matter that David did was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. David is concerned about the wrong set of eyes. He ought to fear Yahweh. He may be the king, but he does not have the authority to define good and evil. David thinks he has all the power. He thinks he has all the authority. You can see him like a master chess player shrewdly planning his moves so that his opponents are left with no way out. And who are his opponents in this story? His own military commander, a guy on his own team, is his obsession. This reminds me of somebody. This reminds me of another king of Israel who spent all his royal energy chasing a successful commander from his own army all through the wilderness. Remember that story? What has happened to David that has made him so much like Saul? Perhaps he feels Uriah is a threat. We're not told. At the very least, Uriah stands in the way of what David wants. And David has come to believe that because he has the power, he can do whatever he wants. When he wants it. I wonder, is David feeling like less of a man because he's not out at the front lines? Does this conquest of his neighbor's wife and life restore his sense of manhood? If so, it shows us how twisted David's thinking has become. Let's be clear, this is not about David's sexual needs. He has seven wives and multiple concubines by this point in the story. If he was in the mood, he had plenty of honorable options. David is living in a dream world of his own making, a world where he's above the law and he can have whatever he wants. And to make matters worse, his men are on the front lines, far from home, far from their wives, fighting his battles. I know this is a stretch, but I wonder if we could think of a modern-day example of abuse of power. Hmm. Think, think. 
I know it's a stretch. Okay, maybe it's not so much of a stretch. <laughs> the Me Too movement has, that has gathered momentum in the past year confronted abusers of power in every conceivable sphere. From Washington to Hollywood, from Ottawa to Wall Street, from Nashville to Las Vegas, from the Olympic Stadium to the pulpits of prominent churches, so many women have come forward, and men, and said, me too. The movement was sparked by a recording of US presidential candidate Donald Trump just days before his election in 2016, remember? First, he bragged about sexual assault of married women as though it were a contact sport. Then he began to plan ahead with his encounter for the TV star he was about to meet. Quote, I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet, just kiss, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. I can almost hear David's voice. I'm automatically attracted to beautiful women, and when you're a king, you can do anything. When the recording was released to the public, Trump offered this response, quote, this was locker room banter, a private conversation that took place many years ago while wearing a mic. Bill Clinton has said far worse to me on the golf course, not even close. I apologize if anyone was offended. It wasn't that bad. It was a long time ago. I've heard worse from my opponent's husband, and I apologize if it offended you. This reminds me of King Saul's confrontation by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. He claims to have carried out God's instructions. When Samuel details the specific violation, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Saul responds, but I did obey the Lord and lists his accomplishments. Only when it's clear that his kingship is over does he finally say, I've sinned. But even here he gives excuses. I'm getting a little political today, but it is a story about kingship, right? Okay, so David's response to the prophet Nathan stands in contrast to these two examples I've just given. Look at 2 Samuel 12, and we were following the word sent in chapter 11, and here God follows suit. It says Yahweh sent Nathan to David. David's been doing all the sending up until now, but God can send too. David had sent Joab into battle, sent to find out about the bathing beauty, sent messengers to get her, sent for Uriah, sent him a gift, sent him back to the front lines with a message. Now in chapter 12, Yahweh sends Nathan, Nathan whose name means gift. God sends a gift to David, a stinging rebuke. But Nathan is shrewd enough to know that he must awaken David's conscience before the rebuke will hit home. So how does he awaken the conscience of a king who's been lulled into delusional thinking? He tells a story. Stories are effective. He says this, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. David is uh, 
not catching on. Uh, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. It works. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as Yahweh lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan takes a deep breath, <laughs> says to David, it's you. You are the man. And then he launches into his critique of David's adultery and murder. Those who speak hard truths to us are a gift. Will we receive what they have to say, or will we plug our ears and defend ourselves? David has a lot to say in the Psalms about those who accuse him falsely. But this time, this time the accusation is painfully true. David has failed abysmally. David knows he's in the wrong. And this is where his story turns and becomes a model for us to follow. His response is just two words in Hebrew. I have sinned against Yahweh. I've sinned against Yahweh, two words in Hebrew, echoing the two words of Bathsheba in the previous chapter, I'm pregnant. This time, David has been reduced to near speechlessness the way Bathsheba was in, in the previous chapter. He offers no defense. He offers no equivocation. He's been caught in the act. I can imagine the responses he might have given but she shouldn't have been naked where I could see her. But Uriah should have gone home to his wife and I wouldn't have had to kill him. But the Ammonites killed him, not me. David offers none of these excuses. He simply takes responsibility. With every failure, we stand at a crossroads. We can hedge and whine and deflect and give excuses, shifting the blame, or we can take responsibility, repent, and become a better person. David's more lengthy confession is found in Psalm 51. This psalm is his cry for mercy. You can flip there if you like. With no small irony, David asks God to bathe him. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Bathsheba had needed a bath for ritual reasons. David needs a bath for moral reasons. David owns his sin, agreeing with God's standards. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This... This is the David we've come to expect as we've traveled with him through his story. This is David in his right mind. David's brokenness is his greatest act of worship. He's, he prays, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. And that's the truth. Our sin is paid for. We need only to come broken. 
owning our rebellion and resting in God's mercy. Once the sin's been dealt with, there's no further condemnation in this chapter. They, they lose the child, Bathsheba's child dies, first child dies. Um, but after this, she gets pregnant again and gives birth. Verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and made love to her. Now, now the narrator's calling her his wife Bathsheba. She has a name now. He, she rightfully belongs to him. The journey getting there was wrong but there's no more condemnation. He went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, loved by the Lord. It's worth noting, though, that the consequences of David's sin are not over. They continue to unfold for many years. This is not a happily ever after story. David's failure sets in motion a whole lot of hurting. So you'll have to um, forgive the animations aren't working. If we start on the left, we have Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the daughter of Ahithophel. Who's Ahithophel? Oh, it's, now the, it's possible that there was a different Ahithophel, that this is not the same one. But it seems quite po possible, plausible, that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Ahithophel who... Uh, gave some great advice to Absalom when he wanted to overthrow his father. So you remember the story. Uh, Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. The full brother Absalom is upset about this, so he goes and kills Amnon. Then he, tr then he tries later to unseat David from his throne, and Ahithophel is the one who gives him the good advice how to do it. And what's Ahithophel's advice? Go lie with your father's concubines on the roof in broad daylight. So David, who from the roof sees Bathsheba and takes her, even though she's not available, now has the prophecy that Nathan gave him in, in the beginning of chapter 12. Nathan had said, uh, verse 11, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. That's what it looks like. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. And Ahithophel is the one who has the idea that Absalom should do this. What a mess. This story, though, is not mainly about sex. It's much bigger than that. David has been anointed as king to shepherd the flock, but here he devours it. When he abuses his power, it becomes toxic. And these actions set in motion a series of events that are destructive in his whole family. Power intoxicates. God anticipated this. In Deuteronomy, long before Israel even had a king, God sets in place a plan to prevent the intoxicating effects of power. Deuteronomy 17. It's a little section here on what, what a king should do. Let me read it for you. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and has taken, have taken possession of it and settled it in, and you say, let's set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint a king over you that the Lord your God chooses. A man after God's own heart. Okay, check. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who's not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. We're up to number eight now. 
He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, here's the plan. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites above the law and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. There was a plan to prevent this. The plan was David meditating on Torah and being constantly reminded that he isn't above the law. Failure, in fact, can be avoided. The problem comes when humans attempt to define good and evil for themselves, taking what they see and want instead of receiving what is given. Adam and Eve ignore God's instructions. They see the fruit and they take it and eat it. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. The Israelites saw that Moses was a long time in coming, so they took their jewelry and made a golden calf. Achan saw the riches of Jericho and took them for himself. Samson saw a young Philistine woman and demanded to have her. David's story stands as a stern warning to all of us. The moment we think the rules don't apply to us is the moment we self-destruct. But this story also holds out tremendous hope. David failed, as all of us do, sooner or later, but his response made all the difference. He looked at his sin squarely in the face and owned it, offering his brokenness as an act of worship. How we respond when we're confronted with our failure is what determines whether the future will be any brighter. If we are teachable, our failures can shape us into men and women of character. I've had a lot of students in my office this year, and it's been delightful to get to know all of you as you've lined up to talk to me. Let me say that my favorite thing that I've heard all year, and it's happened on more than one occasion in more than one way, is when a student comes in my office and sits down and says, Carmen, this class is messing me up. I used to think I was a good Christian, but now we're reading the Torah, and I'm realizing, oh, it's describing me. It's describing my sin. It's describing my lust. It's describing all the ways I've been selfish, and I feel like a mess, and I'm not even sure if I should be a pastoral ministry major anymore. It, I'm not even sure if I'm fit for ministry. That is the moment when my heart sings, because here is a student who's looking in the law of God and seeing in a mirror a reflection of their own sin and saying, that's me. I'm wrong, and I've got to change. This is not okay how I've been living. And that is the most hopeful conversation that's possible to have in my office. I want to pray for, for all of us, and then we're going to go into a closing song. I don't know what the Lord's been doing in your life this year. I don't know what scriptures are stirring, what, what, where your conscience is being pricked. 
But I want to pray that the Lord would use that, that you would receive that pricked conscience as a gift and that you would press into it and, and be willing to own it and look it in the face because there is hope. There is, you do not have to stay in this pattern of sin. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but that forgiveness is only available when we're willing to own it, when we're willing to own the sin in the first place. As long as we keep denying our sin, we're denying the forgiveness that's available to us. So let me pray for you. Lord, we come to you this morning so conscious of our failures, so conscious of the ways in which we have fallen short of your standards, in which we have let power go to our heads, or we've believed lies that our sin doesn't affect anybody else and it's no big deal. Father, I pray that you would give us soft hearts that would be responsive to the work of your spirit, that we would be men and women who are willing to do the hard work of looking at our sin and saying, yep, that was me, and there's no excuse. And Lord, we're just so profoundly grateful for the forgiveness offered to us in Jesus Christ, that you haven't expected us to be perfect, you've just expected us to be honest about our failures so that you can come in and clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, work in our hearts. Create us to be the men and women you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.